amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We've heard of the legends of witches and warlocks, their victims and their spells. Well, today we're going to have author Peter Muse talking about his book, Witches and Warlocks of Massachusetts, Legends, Victims, and Sinister Spellcasters, and historical accounts about witches and warlocks from the Bay State. I mean, we're all aware of Salem and the witch trials, but there were many more stories in towns that followed their lead. I'm Tony Sweet with Truth Be Told. Please welcome to the Truth Be Told Studios, author Peter Mew. Where's the witch's hat or warlock's hat? <laughs> I know I'm not dressed spooky enough. I need to right. be more spooky for these shows. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I'm um, still happy to be here even though I don't have a witch hat on. Right. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And, uh, you know, this is the Halloween season, so I'm sure you're pretty busy especially your book just released not too long ago, uh, and I'm going to show it, and it's a, a great cover. And uh, so tell us about how you got uh, involved with the researching, studying of uh, witches and warlocks of Massachusetts. I mean, how exciting is that? That's fun. It is fun. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was born in Massachusetts. I lived here pretty much my whole life. I just went to college in Maine, but then came back here to live. And right. uh, I've always been the type of person who liked weird stories, I grew up in the 70s, and in the 1970s, like, sort of paranormal things were starting to come into the mainstream, so like right, Bigfoot, right. UFOs, the Bermuda Triangle was really big in the 70s, all those things. But plus, <laughs> I also liked, you know, mythology, folklore, and those sorts of things. And so as I got um, older, you know, I, I studied anthropology in college, so it was right. also more like folklore, mythology. But then when I got out of college, I sort of realized I didn't really know that much about the sort of folklore mythology of the place I lived my whole life, you know, which is uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> like most of us. Right. And so I uh, just started to research it. And the more I researched, the more I found until I needed to do something with all the weird information that was compiling up in my head. <laughs> and so I started a blog in 2008, I think it was. So that was my, it's just called New England Folklore Blog. You can look it up, you'll find it. And I still update it, you know, and there's, there's the logo right there. Thank you. You're I update welcome. that a couple times a month still, so there's a lot of content there. Um, but then, you know, I decided to, I wrote a book about um, legends and lore of the North Shore, which is sort of the area north of Boston. Mm -hmm. And then just uh, last year, I wrote this book about witches and warlocks in Massachusetts, because it's one of my favorite topics, basically, are witch legends. There are really a lot of them here in Massachusetts, and it's kind of almost like... Um, I would say a specialty of this area, sort of witchcraft stories and witch legends, which you don't get in all parts of the country. Right. And in fact, though, in your title, there's, we don't really hear much about is the warlocks either. Right. Right. It's and, mostly uh, witches, 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 <laughs> witches, witches, witches. Uh, you know, in 1641, the Puritans who had colonized Massachusetts passed a law, which says, you know, if, uh, any man or woman be a witch that is half a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Hmm. So they're really specific, like a witch could be a man or a woman. It was not just a woman. A witch could be a man or a woman. Um, but uh, 
they also use other terms sometimes to refer to male witches. So sometimes they might call them a wizard. They might call them a conjurer. Right. They might call right. them a necromancer, things like that. Uh, whereas women were pretty much always just called a witch. So it's sort of like um, there were multiple terms that were used for men. So sometimes warlock too, things like that. So that, and it made a nice title too, right? I couldn't just say no, right. witches, and, <laughs> witches of Massachusetts, so it'd be witches and warlocks of Massachusetts. <laughs> What well, what was that law about? Where did that hap happen to come from? Was it because it we we know that they weren't witches, so and I'm sure right. many of them back then knew they weren't witches. So what was what was the law and what was the reasoning for this law? Yeah, so New England was colonized by Puritans starting in 1620. Right, right? they came to Plymouth, then they went to Salem in 1626, Boston 1630. Um, Haverhill, 1640, things like that. And so the Puritans who settled this area came from a part of England called East Anglia. Mm -hmm. And East Anglia was the part of England that really had the most witch trials and the most witch hunts in England. And so when the Puritans came here from East Anglia, they brought over sort of that belief in witches. And interestingly, like East Anglia did not have a lot of... Um, beliefs in things like fairies for example right. or other types of folklore but they had a huge amount of witch folklore and devil folklore so they brought that over with them so some of it was just sort of a cultural background almost mm -hmm. that they brought over with them but also um it was a way to sort of blame people for problems that were happening in your life <laughs> you know if you're i don't know your cow wasn't giving milk your baby's sick your crops are failing it's the witches you know it's got to be you have to blame somebody right it can't be you right that is causing these problems um someone must be causing these problems so usually it was sort of the uh cranky old person who lived down the street that you had just argued with you know you it's this, the traditional witch story goes like this someone comes to your house it's usually a neighbor that you know but it's usually a neighbor you don't like who's kind of cranky and an unhappy person. And they ask you for something. It'll be like, oh, Tony, can you give me some firewood? Cause it's cold tonight. And you're like, I don't have enough firewood for my own family. I can't give any firewood to you, you cranky cantankerous person. <laughs> the cranky person then walks away muttering under their breath, like, oh, you're going to pay for this, Tony. And they walk away. Right. The next day, your baby becomes sick, right? Or all your chickens drop dead from some mysterious disease. And you're like, oh, I wonder if, that cranky neighbor is actually a witch. And if they actually sort of cast a curse on me and they're making <laughs> this happen. And if enough people in a village would report the same thing about a neighbor, that's how they would become known as a witch, right? So if multiple people said, oh, well, every time I argue with this cranky person, something bad happens to me, that's when the whole village is like, oh yeah, this person's Got probably it. a so, witch. And wow. that's when it proceeds to like a trial stage in the 1600s. Well, where, okay, we always like, we were talking before the show, we always hear about Salem witch trials. Yeah. Was this the first place that someone was accused of being a witch? Is that no. why? It or was it other locations? Could you tell there were us? other locations. It was the biggest. So okay. the Salem trials were the biggest. But the first woman executed in Massachusetts was executed in 1648. Wow. Um, a woman named Margaret Jones who lived in Charlestown, Massachusetts, which is now a neighborhood in Boston. Um, and Margaret Jones was a healer who would heal her neighbors using these really simple herbal remedies. And there aren't a lot of her recipes that are known, but it's like, oh, she would heal people by soaking anise seeds in brandy and she'd <laughs> give it to people and that would sort of cure their illness. Um, you know, there's always a risk when you were a healer, particularly if you're a woman, that if your rem remedies worked really well, people would be like, wow, her remedies work really well. This doesn't seem quite natural that her remedies are so good. Maybe she is using some supernatural means here. On the other hand, if your remedies didn't work, people would be like, oh, maybe she's cursing me and she's a witch. So right. Margaret Jones ended up being accused of being a witch. Um, she and her husband also. And husband. Did he get also? Uh, and her also? husband also, her husband Thomas. Margaret Jones was hanged, um, but her husband was not. And he left Massachusetts. He like got in a boat and got out of there as fast as he could. Um, but she was the first person who was executed. There were five women executed before the Salem trials even happened in Massachusetts. Um, and then there were something like in between sort of 
let's say Connecticut and Massachusetts, uh, there are about 83 trials involving witchcraft. Oh, really? Before the Salem trials even happened. Just there weren't, there were very few executions, but there were about 83 trials involved, which is a lot. That is, no, that's a lot. And so yeah. from what time period you said in, uh, was it 1648 to? 1648 to 1692. So it lasted a while. That was the last like fifty, about a good fifty years. You know, the Puritans passed that law time. against witchcraft in sixteen forty-one, right? And then the witch trials happened in uh, sixteen ninety-two. So that was the end, really. The Selm witch trials were huge. That was like one hundred and fifty people accused, nineteen people were executed, um, one man was crushed to death while being tortured, um, and hmm. then uh, several people just died in prison waiting to be released. So, like, it was a huge tragedy and when it was over people in massachusetts and connecticut and other places like wow that was a real mess like <laughs> they realized that it was a big mistake and um lots of people who had accused their neighbors of being witches later confessed they did it because of pressure because they're afraid to be sent to prison they were afraid they would be tortured all these things came out and um but so what the happened to them week. afterwards because i mean um, nowadays they would definitely get in trouble if they if yeah, they lie not, nothing 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 they would a lot of them confessed in church oh. and things like that um you know and a lot of the um the people in salem whose family members had been executed as witches they left town they mm -hmm. didn't want to continue living next to the people who had um executed their family members so a lot of those folks left town so it was interesting it's um and although people it was the last witchcraft trial in new england it was people did not stop believing in witches a lot of people were just like well i think there are still witches but i've realized you can't prove it in court and so people still believed in witches they just no longer had witchcraft trials and so like even in the 1700s you'll see stories about witches and legends about witches and things like that they didn't stop right the right trials. they kept going and going well we 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 were just saying that majority of these, we know that they weren't witches. They were just accused by a neighbor or somebody that was right. pissed off. But what about the actual witchcraft and witches of Massachusetts, the people that practiced witchcraft? What yeah. can you tell us about that? And so I just, I want to be clear too. When I'm talking about witches and witchcraft, um, I'm using witch to mean like a real specific meaning. I'm talking about sort of an older term to mean, an older meaning to mean like, someone who harms other people using magic i'm not talking about modern day witches who you right. know you know use crystals and tarot and right. you know wiccans <laughs> and folks like that those are good people they are not the people we're talking yeah. about here today yeah. thank about, like, you for classic. making that <laughs> yes because that can get confusing to people and so i don't think there were any actual witches in massachusetts I, it was mostly people it was people who were just falsely accused by their neighbors right on the other hand, lots of people in Massachusetts did use magic because it was the 1600s. It was like the late Renaissance, very different worldview. So a lot of people did use magic and they would use magic mostly to, you know, sort of tell the future like people still do today. Mm -hmm. Or they would use magic to actually defend against witches. So there's a lot of like anti-witch magic that you mm. see in the trial, like... Um, the grossest one, and one that's sort of famous, some people may have heard of this, is called a witch bottle. So let's say that like Tony is, bewi Tony is bewitched, right? We think a witch has attacked Tony. Tony is like speaking in tongues. He's barking like a dog. He's like breaking out in hives. Like that's a, a Saturday night for me. Saturday, another Saturday <laughs> night. He's been bewitched. Um, oh, there's a great image right there. Thank you. So we could like... It was this idea that when a witch attacks somebody, that they made a connection between themselves and the victim. So whoever has attacked Tony has sort of created this like connection between themselves and Tony. And that's how the evil magic flows from the witch into Tony. Hmm. So, but you could use that channel both ways. So we could make the, something flow from you back to the witch. And like, let's say we wouldn't do this to you, but if I were <laughs> to cut off your ear, for right. example, the witch would feel that pain in their ear. Ah, like a voodoo doll type of thing. Yes, right? Or if we were to like burn your hand, the witch would feel their hand get burned. Right. 
And so people would do that when they thought their animal was bewitched, like, oh, my pig is bewitched. I'm going to cut my pig's ear off. And then the next day, you know, they see the cranky old woman walk down the street. She has a bandage on her ear. They're like, oh, clearly she was the witch because she cut her ear. You know, her ear is cut from when I cut my pig's ear. Right. But we can't do that to Tony. We can't do that to another person. You can't cut their ear off. So what they would do is uh, they would take a bottle and they would fill it up with Tony's urine because even your urine has a connection back to the witch because a product of your body. So that connection between the witch and you extends to things like your hair and your urine and even your fingernails. So they would take your urine and put it in a bottle and then they would fill the bottle with sharp things, usually nails or pins, but you could use broken glass or thorns or things like that. So that would be enough probably to cause pain to the witch. But just for extra added you know, damage, they would take these witch bottles often and they would put them in the fireplace. Hmm. So you've got this bottle full of urine, full of broken glass, pins and nails, whatever, and then you put it in the fireplace and you heat it up until it explodes. And so that is supposed to sound like all this pain, this heat, like the needles, the pins, all that pain is supposed to go back to the witch and make the witch stop bewitching you. Um, and so they actually don't find a lot of witch bottles in old houses. Every now and then they do, but they don't find a lot because often they were put in the fireplace and cooked and sort of exploded. And I'll just say like upfront, I do not recommend doing this at home. Like do not heat up a bottle full of urine in your fireplace. <laughs> right. like, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's one a, thing I won't be doing this weekend. So that <laughs> Yeah, not a good hobby. You know, there's um, a story from New Hampshire from the 1770s about this guy named Simeon Smith. And uh, Simeon Smith had a reputation of being, you know, a witch, a wizard, a warlock, call him what you will. And... It was the 1770s, and Simeon Smith was very much on the side of the revolution, right? He hated the British. He wanted them out of New England. And there was a family in his town where he lived in New Hampshire that was actually in support of the British. They were Tories. They supported the British. They supported the king. And according to this legend, Simeon Smith bewitched that family's young son and made him go blind. Hmm. And so the family was understandably unhappy about this. Uh, so they took some of their son's urine. I think they also took some of his blood actually for extra magical power and put it in a bottle and they put that bottle in the fire and they put that in the fire, but the cork kept falling out repeatedly. The cork would fall out and they're like, Oh, the, you know, Simeon Smith is somehow like defusing this witch bottle we're trying to do. So finally they took a, knife stuck the knife through the cork oh my God. of the bottle until it would touch the urine and then put that in the fire and cook that bottle full of pins blood urine with a dagger basically stuck into it cooked that and then simeon smith dropped dead the very next day and oh like well God. i guess our magic worked you know <laughs> so <laughs> well yeah and i i love these old stories and i think in your book there's quite a few stories that uh or you know with from magic to witches to different different situations uh of that time period and uh could you tell us a couple others i i was looking through one where it was about the um uh where is it the cape cod sailors oh yeah cape cod I sailors hear, and... i don't want to give the whole stuff away for your book but it, i that <laughs> one sounded pretty interesting <laughs> it's um these stories are from like the 1700s and the 1800s. So after the Salem trials ended, after the witchcraft trials ended, but again, people still believed in witchcraft. And um, there's one story in particular that's I like about a guy named Sylvanus Rich. So his name was Sylvanus Rich. He lived in Truro, Massachusetts, which is on Cape Cod, and he was a sea captain. And Sylvanus Rich is sailing his ship up along the Cape Cod coast he has a cargo full of grain that he had picked up in like North Carolina. He's bringing it up to Boston. And as he's sailing up along the Cape Cod coast, he's going up along the, um, the Atlantic side. And there were these big dunes in Truro, Massachusetts, like huge dunes, like 70 feet high. And as he's sailing along the coast, he sees nestled in the dunes, this little tiny hut with like smoke coming out the chimney. And he says to his crew, like, you know, I really want to get some milk 
we've been sailing for a long time. All I've had is, you know, brackish water and beer. I really want to get some milk. So he takes a rowboat and sails from his ship to that little hut in Truro. And then the crew sees him sail back to the ship. And he's got a bucket of milk. And he's all excited when he comes back on board his ship. He's like, crewmen, the woman in that hut was the ugliest hag I have ever seen in my <laughs> entire life. But this milk is the sweetest milk I've ever had. So I'm going to go down in my cabin and I'm going to drink this entire bucket of milk myself. So he goes down to his cabin and he locks the door. As soon as he goes into the cabin, this huge storm arises out of nowhere, as if by magic. And it like shreds the ship's sails and spins the ship out into the Atlantic. It's just out there. And the crew is pounding on the captains. They're like, Captain Rich, Captain Rich, the ship, you know, the sails have been shredded. We're in trouble. He doesn't come out. Till the next morning, he emerges from his cabin and he looks really haggard. And he tells the crewmen that, you know, I, the, the hag I got this milk from, she appeared in my bedroom last night and she threw a horse bridle over my head. And then she rode me up and down the length of Cape Cod all night like a stallion. <laughs> and the crew is kind of horrified, like, oh, this is good. This, you know, he's ridden by a witch. And then as proof, Captain Rich lifts up his shirt. And his crewmen can see that his body has bruises all over it. And they're all in the shape of a woman's shoe, as if she'd been riding on his back and digging her heels into his body all night long. <laughs> and so the crew says, well, this is horrible, Captain Rich. But, you know, the sails are shredded. We're in trouble. He's like, crewmen. I have to go back in my cabin and prepare because the witch will come again for me tonight. He goes back in the cabin and locks the door. And as he goes in there, the crew can't tell. Is like he afraid of the witch or is he sort of excited to see this witch? He's sort of ambivalent. And so this goes on for several days where the ship is just adrift out in the ocean. The crew is, you know, confused about what to do. The ship has right. no sails. And Captain Rich spends all his days locked in the cabin, and every night the witch comes and rides him like a stallion up and down the length of Cape Cod. <laughs> and so this could go on forever, and the crew is feeling like they're going to mutiny and just throw the captain overboard, until happily another ship appears on the horizon. And as it draws closer, it becomes apparent that that other ship is captained by Sylvanus Rich's son. And so mm. Sylvanus Rich's son comes over to his father's ship, and the crew explains what's happened. And so the son goes down and, you know, goes into his father's cabin. And right. somehow he breaks the witch's spell. It's never explained what he does to break this witch's spell. But he snaps his father out of it. And so finally, you know, Sylvanus Rich says, all right, crew, I'm, uh, the spell is broken. We'll repair the sails, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they fix the ship. And they manage to sail up to Boston with a cargo full of grain from <laughs> North Carolina. And as they pull into the harbor, the merchant who's been expecting this grain for like a week is there. And he's like, Sylvanus Rich, why is this grain so late? You know, it's a, it's a week late. What happened? And Sylvanus Rich says, just blame it on the sweet, sweet milk of Satan, is all he says. <laughs> and that's how the story ends. I, but, lo um, I love that. That's a great story. It's a good story. And there are a lot of stories about witches using these magical bridles to ride people ride men right um like horses and often they involve sailors not always often they involve sailors but there are some even from like the 1690s a man in Haverhill Massachusetts said one of his neighbors a woman I think named Martha Emerson I want to say her name was had ridden him like a horse and like he said his mouth hurt in the morning when he woke up because he was biting on that metal bit all night long and she rode him like a horse so <laughs> and, i mean it sounds like a dominatrix dominatrix it, it does right and right. the sexual right. symbolism is not subtle right there. no like, not there's, at there's all. a lot of sexual symbolism there and it's not subtle at all you know well this well, kind of fear of women and their sexual right. power right well how do you when you when you uh did your book and, and doing your research do you go and try to get double verification of uh a lot of these stories because uh, i mean just listening to my dad my grandpa and then my dad tell stories about what you know family family uh family stories that their grandparents or grandparents did every time they tell it the story changes a little bit you know yeah. it's similar but changes how do you get the the stories library um uh, historical um societies yeah, i mean how I, do you find I, them i try to go like i like to research i like and i like to read footnotes and so if i'm reading a book and there's a footnote i try to follow the footnote and right. i will say that with um 
a few years ago it was much harder to do this but now that so much is online electronic right. copies of like old town histories and things like that right so often those have like the oldest version of a story that you can go back to um but i'm also when i write when i wrote this book like when it's a witch trial for example i want you to be really clear like this is what happened as this is as accurate as i can be about what happened during the salem witch trials with some of the legends I just will say like, this is the legend. Like yeah. this is what people say happened. It's more to me in that case about the story and what people think happened sometimes and what really happened. Like what really happened to Sylvanus Rich, I don't know. Like I've seen his grave. He, his grave is in, in Truro, Massachusetts. I went there this summer, took some photos of it. Um, but he died relatively young. He died like when he was 35 years old. Hmm. And um, he did have a son named Isaiah, but Isaiah was 11 years old when his father died. So it wasn't like Isaiah was out there in the Atlantic captaining his ship. Right. So, you know, the story is probably not true. Like maybe it was a remembrance of some thing that happened, but I don't think it really happened the way they say it happened. <laughs> um, well, this this time of the show i usually ask anybody in the chat room if they would like to participate and ask a question so if you guys have questions please ask now in the chat room but one person did ask uh do you believe psychics are considered witches or would they have been considered witches back then that's an interesting question um Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Like, if you believe in psychics, they would have been considered witches. And there was there were people at that time who were fortune tellers, mm -hmm. who were accused of witchcraft. There was one in particular during the Salem witch trials, a man named Samuel Wardwell, who was um, a farmer, but he also told fortunes. Oh. And he did it by palm reading. And he was really, really accurate. And that kind of led people to think he was a witch. They're like, you're too good at this. Like, how can you predict these things that happened? How did you know what happened to me when I never told you? Like, right. <laughs> you know, I stole that pig when I was 14 years old. Like, how do you know this stuff? And so when they started to accuse people of being witches, he was one of them. And that was one of the reasons why people thought he was a witch, because he was too good at telling people's fortunes. Um, so, I mean, if you believe fortune telling is a psychic gift, then yes, those people would have been considered witches at the time. I mean, it makes sense. And Samuel Wardle was executed for this. So. Well, that I was going to say, we heard about the one lady, not in Salem, but the first lady, Jones, uh, was executed, but the husband actually left. The, yes. But how many, how many people actually beat the system? And how many, I mean, what would you had to do to actually convince them that you weren't, Witches, because I've heard like, but if they die, oh, they're not witches. <laughs> yeah, right. It's uh, before the Salem trials, it was one situation, right? It was hard to prove somebody was a witch before then because like right. there were these 83 trials and only five people right. were executed. So people were not uh, like the judges, the, the ministers of the time were not eager to find people guilty of witchcraft. It was not a huge thing. Right. They were, it was always a risk, but it was not like they they wanted to get a lot of evidence basically before they would do something. Because it, it was equivalent to murder for them. Like you, mm -hmm. if you were found guilty of witchcraft, you were hanged. You weren't sent to prison. You weren't whipped. You were hanged. Wow. So they wanted to be really sure they were, you know, really executing a witch. <laughs> but when it, the Salem trials came along, like that was nineteen people were executed. 
the judges who presided over that over those trials they set some rules that really um screwed things up for people so they believed that there was this vast conspiracy of witches that was seeking to overthrow massachusetts hmm. so they believed there were all these witches out there and so they wanted to know the name of every witch they could find every witch out there they want to know all of them and so people who are being you know brought to the stand will be like oh yeah i signed the devil's book and i saw at least the names of 40 witches oh no and somebody else would be like i was i signed the devil's book i saw like 70 names in there <laughs> and so they knew there was this, this number ever growing so what they did was if you pled guilty and said you were a witch your life was spared oh wow so that's and all you had to do right and you had to say you were guilty of being a witch and you had to name other names so like, yeah, I, if I was arrested, I'd be like, yes, uh, me, Peter Muse, I am indeed a witch. And I saw Tony at the witch Sabbath as well. So Tony's a witch too, so you should arrest him. So then they would arrest you. Oh my gosh. And if you were eager to save your life, which a lot of people weren't, you would say, oh yes, I'm a witch too. And you know, my wife's a witch too, and so is her mother. So then they would be brought into court. And they would say the same thing. So it kept growing and growing and growing. The people who were honest, the people who had integrity, the people who said, I'm not a witch, this is craziness, I've never been a witch, those were the people who were executed, which is awful. So those 19 people who were executed all pled innocent. They were all the, they were the honest people. They were the people like, no, this is crazy, we are not witches. And those were all the people who died, which is terrible when you think about it. So all the people who lived were the people who you know, did what they had to do to save their lives. And I understand, like, I would probably do the same thing. Like, but, I'm not saying I would be some moral paragon. Right. But the other people who, the people who were executed were all the people who said they were innocent. But what's... And, and they were innocent, right? But what's crazy is by saying I'm a witch, especially back then, doesn't mean the people in your town were going to accept you from then on out, would they? Because now they're like, oh... Now. No, not yeah, not necessarily, right? Uh, but they also were thinking at the time that, particularly during the Salem trials, more than the other trials, that if you confessed, somehow this would break your power. Oh. That once people knew you were a witch, you had no power over them, or once you said you were a witch, you didn't have any power over them. Eh, you know what I mean? It, I, yeah, yeah. The mentality is not entirely airtight. Yeah, I was going to say that didn't make sense. <laughs> I'm a witch. Okay, let's forget it. Go back to normal, you know, viewing or normal television show. Um, yeah, uh, I think they they thought your power would be broken once you actually confessed. Wow. That, who and who made who made these rules up? Was it the was it mostly men or was it the women? It was all, or? It was all men. Um, Is that why most of the men stayed alive? <laughs> well, it, the people who were executed. It was fourteen women were executed five men were executed and then the one man was crushed during being right, while being right. tortured it's um you know the film trials started because two young girls started to exhibit classic witchcraft <laughs> symptoms like they were they again speaking in tongues barking like dogs felt strange pains in their body strange pains in their body things like this <laughs> um and this had happened many times before but these two young girls lived in the home of uh, Reverend Paris, Samuel Paris, who was the minister of Salem Village. Right. And so having a sort of a witchcraft attack in a minister's house, people were like, ooh, this is bad news. Like, this is the devil really trying to take down Massachusetts because it was such a religious area. So they brought in, uh, you know, various magistrates to investigate, and then they assigned the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts to lead this court, this guy <laughs> named um, William Stoughton. Ooh, and sounds... he was just a fanatic. He was a hardcore person. He was fanatic. He set very strict rules. Um, at one point, they, the, a jury found a woman innocent. Like this woman, a woman named Rebecca Nurse, is innocent. She was like a 71-year-old, well-respected, church-going woman that everybody loved. The jury found her innocent. And he sent the jury back, said, no, you know what? I think you're wrong. Like, oh, I, I think you're wrong. Why don't you come back and try again? Wow. <laughs> and so they came back to, oh, well, you're right. She's guilty. And she was executed. So he had a lot um, of influence, it sounds like. And a lot of influence. And really, um, I, eventually, over 150 people were accused of being witches. And it all really ended when sort of the late fall of 1692, there had been like a growing concern in Massachusetts, like, 
how can there be so many witches, right? There's right. so many witches. It's like everybody is apparently a witch these days. And one of the final straws was when they named the governor's wife as a witch. Oh, wow. This group of, aff- <laughs> of afflicted girls said, you know what? We saw the governor's wife signing the devil's book or whatever. She's a witch. And the governor's like, mm, I think it's time to shut this down. Yeah. yeah don't talk like, that about wasn't my the, wife. That was not like the that. only reason, but that was sort of the last straw. I think he's like, yeah, this is done. Yeah. You don't you don't mess with the governor, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but to point out William Stoughton, the lieutenant governor who was in charge of this, like, there had been several pregnant women who had been found guilty and they were in prison awaiting execution. So <laughs> they, you know, the governor shut down the trials. So these right. pregnant women are like, oh, great, we're going to be free. And William Stoughton actually tried to execute them after they'd given birth to their children. And happily, the governor stopped him from doing that. But he was not like William Stoughton was not a good person. It, it doesn't doesn't sound like it. But uh no. Well, here's this, and I, like I said, I don't want to give all the stories away because I want people to buy the book. And as as we said Me earlier, too. it's it's an amazing. It sounds like amazing. I, I haven't had a chance to really read it yet. So, witches and warlocks of Massachusetts, legends of victims and sinister spellcasters. But what I want to want to talk about, I, I I saw in the cliff notes here about. Uh, Where's it at? The uh, the witch who died twice that inspired The Handmaid's Tale. Yes, 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 yes. I'm yes, a yes. huge fan of that uh, that series. So, okay, can you great, can you yeah. touch on that one? Because this might this might perk some interest here. <laughs> so this is a woman who lived in Hadley, Massachusetts, which is out in western Massachusetts, the western part of the state, away from the coast. And um, in the 1650s, her her, her name was Mary. Mary Webster. I'm going to check that just to make sure, but it was Mary Webster. Um, So she had been accused of being a witch in Hadley, Massachusetts. And she was sent to Boston for trial to, you know, for a higher level court to approve her, you know, basically her execution. And the judges in in Boston were like, no, you know what? She's innocent. She's not a witch. We're sending her back to Hadley. (laughs) So she was sent back to Hadley and a man in Hadley, a wealthy man in Hadley, who had been one of the people who had accused her of witchcraft, once she came back to Hadley, he started to um, experience various symptoms of witchcraft. And at first, people weren't sure if he was being bewitched because he was feeling a lot of pain, right? He was feeling pain in his abdomen and things like this. And he would say, oh, you know, God is doing this to me. God is, you know, testing me, but I'm a good, pious Protestant Puritan. I understand this is just God's test for me. Then the pain kept getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, he started to scream out, you know what? Mary Webster is doing this to me. She's a witch. She's cursing me. (laughs) And I can see her specter floating around my head, attacking me. (laughs) And so his family in terms like, oh, Mary Webster, she's always been in trouble. She's always been a witch. Um, and, you know, various things started to happen in the bewitched man's house, like the medicine they used to treat him would disappear. People said they felt invisible animals rubbing against their bodies and things like this. And, but they couldn't do anything to Mary Webster because she had already been found innocent of witchcraft by the judges in Boston. So an angry mob actually went to Mary Webster's house, grabbed her, dragged her out into this cold, oh, snowy night and hanged her from a tree. Oh, jeez. Uh, and then they cut her down for some reason. I, I don't know if they thought she was dead or if someone talked them some sense to them, but they cut her down and then they buried her in the snow. And she actually survived that. She survived being hanged. Oh my and um, she lived for like another 40 years or something in Hadley. The guy who said he was bewitched by her like died within a couple of weeks. But Mary Webster lived for another 40 years or so in Hadley. And interestingly, um, Margaret Atwood who's the author of The Handmaid's Tale and various other books, she was researching her family genealogy and discovered she was a descendant of Mary Webster. Oh, no way. And she wanted to write about her. She said, oh, I'm going to write a book. Like, this is a great story. And she originally thought she would write a book about Mary Webster's ordeal and then decided she didn't want to have to do sort of all the research on, like, Puritan life in 1650s Hadley, Massachusetts. But she took the ideas from that and wrote The Handmaid's Tale. That's crazy. That is, a, that's amazing. Because that, that's, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a great series. It's a. I haven't, I read the book. I've never <laughs> seen the series. But again, it's like set in Massachusetts. 
Yeah. And it's almost like the Puritans have returned. Right. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? They've kind of returned from the past and, you know, lots of hangings I know in The Handmaid's Tale and things like that and other executions, I well, think. I know this goes a little, little not outside the box here, but when, when you're doing the research and, and you know, you're touching on a lot of souls that were lost for, you know, that were innocent and, and was not meant to lose their life because of being accused of being a witch. But do, do you, have you visited any of these sites and felt a presence or felt any energies or felt, had any dreams about, you know, a spirit coming to you and, and guiding you in the right direction or, or anything well, like that? I guess here, um, I've been to a lot of these places and graves and things like right, that right. when I can go to graves and, uh, you know, in Salem, you can go to like the Salem witch house, which is, uh, was owned by one of the Salem witch trial judges. And people right. say that's haunted. I think like the ghost adventures folks did an episode there right. and things like that. <laughs> like, here's my story about like encountering a witch spirit. And I will tell this to you. So, um, <laughs> Anne Hibbins was a woman who was executed in Boston in the 1660s. And uh, she was a wealthy woman. She and her husband, I, wanna, I don't remember his name, but she and her husband had emigrated here from England. They were quite wealthy. Her husband was politically well-connected. But Anne Hibbins was a very argumentative person, um, which rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, particularly at that time when women were not supposed to be so argumentative. And so she was actually excommunicated from her church because she was so argumentative and you know, would not sort of follow the minister's guidance on to be less outspoken. When her husband died, her well put, her well connected husband died, um, and Hibbins was accused of being a witch, and she was executed basically because she was an argumentative person. But she was executed and she was hanged around in the 1660s. And um, Nathaniel Hawthorne includes her as a character in his novel, The Scarlet Letter. She appears a couple times in that book where she's trying to. Uh, entice Hester Prynne, the heroine, to go out into the forest and meet the devil, right? So in Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, she's actually a witch. In reality, she was just a wealthy woman that people didn't like and they wanted to get rid of her. But she owned, she and her husband owned um, a house in Boston, but then they owned a big tract of land out in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is where I live now. And I'd always been curious about like, where did they own their land in Brookline? Like, where did they own, they owned like 300 acres of land in Brookline. And so finally, I found an old town map, and it looked like my house where I live now was smack dab in the middle of the land that Anne Hibbins owned. Oh, wow. Talk about and crazy. And I started to have, and I had been curious about this for like years, because I, you know, I'd slowly been finding more information. I'm like, oh my, and so when I found that out, I had this like sinking feeling in my stomach. Like, ooh, this is really weird. Like it's, I'm at ground zero, right? This is the spot. And, you know, I found that out. And then, like, the next half hour later, I, like, I had to go to the nearby supermarket. So I go to the supermarket. It's like a windy March day. The wind is blowing. It's gray. It's raw. It's cold. And I go into the supermarket. And as I'm walking inside, a huge red-tailed hawk slams into the window right as I walk by. And I'm like, ooh, this is like a freaky thing. I was already on edge. And I see a red tail hawk basically <laughs> come at me towards me like, Krr. I was like, yikes. So I'm a little freaked out. I buy what I need to buy in the supermarket. I go outside and I see on the ground outside the window was a dead sparrow. And apparently the hawk maybe had chased the sparrow like right into the window and didn't realize the sparrow was just dead on the ground. Oh my God. Wow. And then as I'm looking at this dead sparrow, music is playing, you know, on the supermarket PA system outside. And they start playing Rhiannon by... Fleetwood Mac, which is about a witch. And I was like, okay, this is like a lot of weird stuff happening all at once, right? It was like almost, it was like all these synchronicities and I started to get freaked out by it. And so for a long time, I was like, oh, did I somehow like encounter like this archetypal witchy spirit or something like that? You know, when I made that realization that I was living in the land where Anne Hibbins had owned right. and it had been stolen from her. Oh my God, wow. But then here's the interesting thing, like, Six months later, I went back and looked at the map again, and I was totally wrong. Like, I was not, my house is not where she owned land. I had misread the map. Like, the pond that I saw was a different pond. 
And so actually she owned land like, you know, two miles south of here. And so like, I don't know. Like I had that experience. It was a weird, freaky experience. Right. <laughs> but was it accurate? I don't know. Like, yeah. But that, no, that's pretty, it's pretty fascinating though that uh, you're doing this research and find out you're actually on the land. <laughs> Right. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. My hair was like, woo. My right. Hair stood up. Like, right. Ah. Right. But then it wasn't true. But for a while, but still, I, it was I mean, true. even yeah. even just that that the freaking out of like, wait a minute, is this like yeah. they're coming coming for me in a different in a right. different way? The phone call is coming from inside your own house. Right. 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 <laughs> oh my god! Don't put that in my head. I won't sleep for a week. Um, well, I mean, the time's almost up, but uh, I mean. What was what was it like putting this together? I mean, I I couldn't imagine like finding out all these stories and you know putting them on paper and uh, sharing this with you know your the, my audience and just everybody out there that's interested in stories and ghost stories and and paranormal stories like like we lo love to talk about. What what was it like putting the book together? It was good. Um, I have a kind of like a collector's mindset you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so i've for a long time been sort of collecting these witch stories but i'd always been looking for like oh i really wish there was a book that had all the witch stories from massachusetts in one place right. and i never found it so i'm like okay i'm just gonna write that book <laughs> right. for myself like even if no publisher wants this book i will have all the witch stories from massachusetts in one place so i can just look up half hanged mary mary or ann hibbins or whoever i want to look up and so I enjoyed pulling it together, you know, as um, I really took a pretty broad view of what I would consider for the book too. So I took things from the 1600s when there were witch trials and court cases, but then I had legends from the 1700s and 1800s right. where it was just more legends about witches. And then I also included some paranormal stories as well from the 20th and 21st century where, you know, there are places in Massachusetts where people say you can, um, encounter the ghost of like these two um, albino twin boys who were supposedly killed by the Puritans who thought they were witches, which is probably not a true story, but you know, there may still be something lurking in those woods. I'm not going to go there at night myself. Right. But... Yeah. Yeah. Go with your little flashlight and see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there are, so there are lots of stories like that, like places that maybe are haunted by the ghost of a witch or the ghost of a witch's victim or things like that. Like the man who was crushed to death while being tortured in the Salem trials, Giles Corey, like his ghost haunts this cemetery supposedly in Salem, but it wasn't a cemetery when he died. That was actually the field where he was staked to the, the ground and crushed oh. to death with stones. But it's since become a, a cemetery around that site, you know, but supposedly his ghost haunts that also. So there are lots of stories like that as well. Is there, so it was fun to put together. Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Is there one, like one, uh, woman that was accused that just really stood out to you that you're like you know this woman has had balls <laughs> to to stand up for herself because i couldn't imagine like you said to to go no i'm not you're gonna die but i'm not a witch i mean i couldn't imagine right i mean i would have said yeah i'm a witch i wouldn't like, like what it, whatever you need me to say <laughs> <laughs> right. there was a woman named sarah good um she sort of sticks out to me she was a poor woman like she had started out in a well-off family in salem massachusetts right. and like her inheritance was stolen and then she married a guy who was like a loser and he died <laughs> so then she and her two children were basically in poverty and they would just wander around salem begging for food and if people refused to give her food she would basically mumble under her breath and swear at them oh. you know but so she became um, accused of witchcraft and so when she was put on trial, people were like, oh, Sarah Good, you must confess you are a witch. And in particular, this one reverend, this man named Nicholas Noyes, was like, Sarah Good, you must confess you are a witch. Otherwise, you'll be executed and you will go to hell. And she was like, you know what? I'm no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you find me guilty, God will give you blood to drink, is what she huh. said. <laughs> and she's kind of quoting from the book of Revelation, right. where like, it, you know, God gives his enemies blood to drink. And so, like, <laughs> she refused to confess, so she is found, you know, she's executed, right? They yeah. say, oh, you're a witch, you refuse to confess, you're, you must really be a witch, you're executed. So she's feisty and angry, but she's still hanged. Um, the Reverend Nicholas Noyes, he lived for quite a few years afterwards, um, but then one day he's sitting at home, 
and suddenly he has like a brain hemorrhage and blood starts to gush out of his mouth. Oh my God. And his family's like, oh yeah, that witch. <laughs> she said that God would give him blood to drink. I guess she was right. You know, and he- um, Wow, that's, yeah. that's, fu that's funny. That's yeah. funny. I, I love it. I love it. Well, these stories are great and I can't believe that time is up, but uh, you're definitely going to have to come back. Do you have any uh, working on any new books or uh, anything or are you taking a break for now? <laughs> you know, this uh, fall is just like promoting this book. Maybe a book about monsters is maybe the next one I would like to do. Like, again, collecting all the stories I know about monsters and putting them in one place would be great. As well, well, I love it. Well, how, where do people find your book and your blog? Go ahead and tell them where to. Uh, my blog's at newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com. It's right there. Or if you just look up New England Folklore blog, it's kind of the only one of that name out there. And I update it pretty frequently. So you can find me there. Um, here's my Instagram account, which is a big mess of things. It's like baking witchcraft it's like whatever's going on in my life so. he shows off his guns on there that was my workout routine <laughs> like whatever's happening on that instagram account that's right. a, um, but you can find my book at amazon barnes and noble books a million bookshop.com pretty much anywhere you can buy a book it's available right now so well we appreciate and if you, you like it leave a review yes please leave a, a positive review we a don't positive review if you don't like it just pretend you yeah never just move it. on <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for sharing these stories and uh, getting us ready for the Halloween night, which is coming up. I can't believe in just a couple of weeks, but uh, we, you know, we we love bringing people like yourself and and sharing your stories and your research and and uh, congratulations on the uh, book and uh, hopefully it's a bestseller. Thank you. It was great to be on. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm Tony Sweet again. Uh, please. Uh, join us on uh, Monday for uh, Minuteman Report with Robert Hensley. Wednesday, you can go uh, Truth Be Told Transformation. That's more like shamans and crystals and, and uh, all that good stuff, the spiritual side of Truth Be Told with Bonnie Burkett. And then, of course, join me here every Friday right here on Truth Be Told and uh, where we have a variety of different uh, fun topics from paranormal to historical figures and controversial topics. So we appreciate you every week. And like we said earlier, please share the show. Leave amazing comments. And uh, I, I appreciate you all for supporting us for all these years. And until next time, uh, I will see you soon right here on Truth Be Told. Bye. This has been another episode of Truth Be Told. Thank you so much for watching. Recorded live at UBN Go Studios in Burbank, California. Join us on social media. Facebook, Truth Be Told Radio. Instagram, Truth Be Told Paranormal. Go to Truth Be Told Worldwide for more information on upcoming shows. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.